Vintage brand is the story of American sporting culture, combining our rich history, traditions, rituals, and pageantry. Weaving together more than a century of American sports memories and images, it defines what tradition really means. Come experience the history and rituals. Remember and honor the legends. Feel the passion and pageantry of the past. Welcome to the greatest collection of American sports history and images, all reproduced on fan apparel and merchandise. Welcome to Vintage Brand. Resolved to the fact that the journey back to the Steelers would be arduous, Rocky pursued his NFL dream with an unrelenting dedication. The recovery uh, was, was just beginning, and when you put the perspective on the recovery, you had doctors tell you pretty much right away that, uh, you know, well, hey, you know, the, the hard part's over. We saved your legs. But as far as football, uh, they pretty much told you that that, 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 that the dream was over as far as being able to ever certainly to be able to play in the NFL again. Well, it, that, that was, you know, that was the, 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 the prognosis of, uh, of the doctor. And you just kind of put this in perspective, you know, which is that we've all been in and I don't care what it might be at some time, anybody who's ever had an accident or, or surgery or on a recovery um, uh, of one nature or, you know, is that in your mind, you know, you go, why me now? What, you know, it, it, what, did, why, what did I do to deserve this, et cetera? And you start feeling sorry for yourself, whatever that dream might be. When I was first out of the field, you know, you have some positive impact impact or people that make or put things in the right sense for you. When I was out of the field at the field hospital, I was there for a couple of days before I had a fly to, uh, to Tokyo. And so uh, IV drips and morphine drip and, you know, and you're sitting there and uh, feeling sorry for yourself and across from me and I, and I, it, it, across from me was a, a young soldier uh, was a triple amputee and he lost oh. his and he lost his left arm oh, and both legs. Mm. And every day that I was there in the ward, and as I said, I was only there for a couple of days, he would grab that trapeze, that little swing over his bed, and, and as the aides would come to take him to therapy, and he'd swing his torso into the wheelchair, and I'd be watching this. And they'd push him out, and he made sure that he stopped at every bed. I mean, in, in the ward. It wasn't a big ward. He'd stop, but he'd come, he'd stop at my bed. And he'd go, hey, how you doing? I said, you look better today than you did yesterday. Because when you got here yesterday, let me tell you, in all honesty, you look like shit. <laughs> Listen, we got some good docs. I'll take care of you. We'll get you out of here. I'll see you back in the real world one of these days. And I thought, wow. I mean, if anybody could be embittered with their life, yeah. like, let's be honest. Uh, would be that young soldier having to live with those atrocities that took place thousands of miles away. But yet, yet, he had a positive attitude. And I thought to myself, really, I mean, you know, I mean, if he had an attitude like that, what about me? I'm going to walk someday. I mean, I got my limbs, you know, damaged as it may be, but I got my limbs. So then I went to, so then, as I said, I went to Tokyo. And after a couple of weeks, I got enough courage, and that was it, to ask my physician what he thought the, the, the damage did. Can I come back to play this game? That's all I wanted to know. Can I come back to play this game? Um, 
And his response was something like this, <laughs> quick chuckle. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. Um, you're going to have a normal life. You're going to be able to do the things that normal people just don't expect to get back on that gridiron. You uh, just won't have the strength nor the flexibility to do the things that are necessary to be a running back in the NFL. Hmm. What he had formulated from his point of view, his stream of information, correct or not, in his diagnosis was a perception about my ability. But, but here's the important thing. As my authority figure, and we all somebody's authority figure along the way. But as my authority figure, he just sucked that hope right out. Yeah. So two days later, as the story goes, I get a postcard in the mail, a simple postcard. It's got two lines on it. It says this, Rock, team's not doing well. We need you. Art Rooney. Wow. Somebody needed me. Well, they didn't need me. But being the family that they were, you know, somebody reached out. Uh, and cared uh, about what you're doing. And I think that's, you know, in essence, that's all that we are looking for. So as an athlete, you know, it, not even as an athlete, as a human being, you know, we've been, we've had our, our, our sense of injuries, muscle pulls, operations, whatever they might be. And you kind of, you know, say, okay, fine. You get hurt Ooh, and it hurts. Oh, then you see the doctor and they fix it. Then you go through rehab and then you're back out playing again, whether it be in the neighborhood, <laughs> whether it be a scraped yep. knee, you know, or a stove finger or a broken finger or something of that nature, you know, it doesn't stop us. We just got to put through it. In my mind, that was what I was looking at. Okay. I didn't lose a leg. I didn't lose an arm. Yep. I've been hurt before. I've had operations before. Um, and so in time, this will heal and it's what you do with it that, that counts and having an opportunity becomes very important. So when I get out of the service, um, the, the, uh, Steelers invite me back to camp and yep. I go, and I go back to camp that year, um, in 1970, um, and, Maybe it was too soon, but I had to go back. And uh, it took its toll through, through basic training. Um, and, uh, you know, I started to, to limp and pain was there, et cetera, et cetera. But um, being the family that they were, they eventually put me on injured reserve and I had another operation, okay, uh, which they bought me a year. The following year, I came back a little bit healthier, bigger, stronger. Um, and made the developmental squad. Hmm. Um, and they, they bought me two years, but they bought me two years of an opportunity to heal, to get stronger. And then you have to be able to do something with that. And so I come back in 72, a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. And as I tell people, I said, I'm the leading ground gainer. Preseason. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exhibition season. Right. So you got your chance to make the team. Right. <laughs> so yeah, special teams. And so in 73 is the same thing. I come back again and I never carried the football as a running back. And then in 72, Franco has the immaculate reception and we go to the playoffs and things are good. In 73, I come back and leading ground gainer again during the exhibition season, made the team, got to carry the ball once during that season. But like all of us, you know, you start to question. Yeah. Where's the future? 
you know, what's going to happen? You know, I've been hanging around for a while and it may not sound like much now, but when you live through it, you know, it's like five years since I've now was a rookie. And even though I've been in the military and then coming back, trying to make the team, but it's still, oh, you know, maybe I thought maybe my life's going in another direction. I mean, they gave me credit for being in the service. And so I had five years of, um, of duty or of playing time towards my retirement. And I, and I thought maybe my life's going in another direction. I mean, I come back, I make the team. Okay, my goals are, were met. Um, maybe not to the level I thought, but as I always tell people, that was not the deal we made in the rice paddy. And so right. yeah. I left the team. So I left the team to try to find my life's work. I was in Chicago hmm. um, selling life insurance. When I got a call from a teammate of mine, Andy, Andy Russell. Yep. Andy Russell. And <laughs> Andy, Andy Russell. The, yeah. So for those, Andy was captain of the football team. He was an all-pro linebacker, um, and uh, it was a uh, it was a, a great guy. Andy also was a 16th round draft choice. Uh, <laughs> came into the league in uh, 1963. Uh, uh, also was in the military, spent two years in Germany, uh, and then came back uh, to the, uh, the team in, uh, in 66 um, and made it. And so, um, uh, but anyway, so he's coming to Chicago as a big sports dinner taking place um, and sponsored by the NFL. And so he said, why don't you join us for dinner? And I said, no, I can't. I, you know, in my mind, I'm not coming back. And and uh, I declined, he pushed, I declined some more and then asked me why. And I just said, well, I quit, I'm not coming back. <laughs> My second piece of advice was <laughs> by him. He said, you can't quit. If you quit, what you have already done is that you've already made a decision for that coaching staff. Mm. Do you like them well enough to make decisions for them? <laughs> no, <laughs> your right. responsibility, if this is what you wanna do is that you come back and you make them make a decision. You give them all the reasons to either keep you or release you, but you don't cut yourself. The reality of this game is that we're all expendable. The reality of this game is we all can be cut at any time. But if this is what you want to do, then you got to come back. And maybe it was just the arm twisting I needed, and I went back. And obviously, everything that I had perceived <laughs> did take place. And I had a fight with every free agent, draft choice, and rookie once again right. to make the team. So, you know, in my in 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 in, in in, in, in this in this whole process, in the back of my mind was that um, I at least I didn't ever want to get to a place that if it didn't work out and if it didn't turn out the way you wanted to, is that um, I didn't want to say, well, what if? What exactly. if you would have worked out? What if you would have spent more time? What if you you know done yep. this? So there are things that I can't control. And of course that's ownership and or coaching staff and or their decisions, but I can control um, becoming stronger or better or better shape or whatever it is, or my own mindset of how to be able to uh, you know, make this team. So that uh, became important. And, uh, and I was a leading ground gainer again in 1974, just, and I, and I, and I tell you this, <laughs> and, 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 and and what I'm trying to put in perspective here for the listeners is that the reason, the reason I was a leading ground gainer during those three pre-seasons wasn't because of the fact that I was bigger, better, faster, 
than all the other running backs. No, I think they were trying to get rid of me. So I just played more than anybody else. I carried the ball more than anybody else. Given those two simple statistics, I better be the leading ground gainer. All right. All they were providing for me was an opportunity to make the team. So they had to keep me. And I was the fifth running back out of four at the beginning of that season, back playing special teams. When Franco Harris gets hurt, the backup becomes the starter. I become the backup to the backup. Wow, I've never been there before. So with renewed vigor, I play that first game, second game, third game, fourth game. Right before the half of the fourth game, the backup gets hurt and I'm inserted game at, at fullback. And my running mate, Preston Pearson. Preston Pearson, yeah. Finished yep. his career with the Dallas Cowboys, remember? Yep. Um, he breaks one 43 yards and scores and gives us a lead. And we go in at halftime, go over assignments, adjustments. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, who's going to start the second half? Maybe those guys have got you to lead the first half. And so Preston and I get to start the second half and as a team. <laughs> so here's the function. As a team, we win the game. Following week, everybody's still banged up. So Preston and I get to start as a team win that game and the week thereafter it's a monday night game an extra day of healing franco now franco now becomes healthy damn I said to myself, well, <laughs> here he at least comes i got a chance to play at least i got a chance to play prove show what i could do we had a pre-game meal um we'll go over assignments adjustments and coach looks around and he said franco you and rock will start tonight and momentarily i was quite confused i wow I didn't know how we both could play the same position at the same time. <laughs> right. When it yeah. me I was going to play the fullback position, play the other running back position. Um, nobody told me that. I wish have. And ultimately, we start and play that remaining part of the season, and we win the, 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 the division. We go to the playoffs. We go to the Super Bowl for the first time. We play six more years, and we go to four more Super Bowls. And in 1976, Franco and I become the second set of running backs in the history of the NFL each to gain a thousand Thousand yards rushing in one season. But the reason I got a chance to play or start that game wasn't because of my size or speed, two things I do not possess, but (laughs) (laughs) because of one talent. And this becomes important to your listeners Hmm. uh, and to those who have aspirations because we all have a talent, one nature or another. And it's really up to us to be able to define what that talent is that we bring to our lives, to our community, to our work, uh, uh, spot, to, to school, whatever whatever that might be. Um, because uh, prior to that breakout group, uh, Chuck Knoll had stopped our backfield coach and said, listen, you have a weakness in your backfield. Who is your best blocker? Right. He said, blighter. Yep. He said, then start him one talent and so that fine line of one if you think about it that connects our life comes full circle at least for me and i get a chance to you know uh, be on that team for all those years and to be able to uh wear those four super bowl rings not because of me but because of the people that i played with and the opportunity that existed before us and franco in that, that first super bowl you talk about your blocking ability he sets a Super Bowl rushing record. And uh, once again, I'm talking to Paul Revere's horse here. <laughs> you had a little bit to do with it. He, 
He did. We had a we had a great rushing uh, a game. Um, yeah, Franco sets a sets a sets a Super Bowl record at that time. Yep. Um, at the time. Yep. And I came in. I came in second. Actually, actually, actually. It, <laughs> you had that dive twenty two play though that was pretty slick. Well, we had it was called a, a dive thirty four sucker. Oh, dive thirty four. I'm sorry, sucker. sucker. No, that was that's that right. Sucker. Little trap on the inside. Oh, yeah, it was. It wasn't even a trap. It was, we were just faking everybody one way because we trapped. And it was this big hole that was left on the on the right hand side. Yeah. So I would take a counter step, come back. Everybody Ooh. would go to the left. I come back <laughs> to the right. Oh yeah. Uh, the first time we, we 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 ran it. It was the second play of the game, the third play of the game. And we ran it, and, and I, I and I and I picked up, I picked up eighteen yards. I yeah, picked up eighteen yards. It was yeah. a big, Franco would have scored, but but I got eighteen yards, which was fine for me. And so <laughs> we ran we ran it we ran it about five times during the um, during the during the game. Now here I, I'll give you a little insight. So yeah. that was a pretty. It, it wasn't a close game. We had a lead um, nine to. I think it was nine to two at the time. Um, and so we had the ball down on our 23 yard line or so. And it was maybe it was a, and it was a third and it was a third and six situation. And we had to pick mm-hmm. up the first down. Um, and Bradshaw comes into the huddle as Bradshaw comes into the huddle and he goes, um, okay guys, what do you want to run? Hmm. In unison. I don't even think anybody took a breath. In unison, they go, sucker. And I'm huh. thinking to myself, sucker. Yeah, because you don't block anybody on sucker. You guys don't do anything. <laughs> I mean, they, we can, how many times do you think we can run this? You know, so yeah. you're going to sucker this. This is the sixth time. Oh, so we run it and uh, they respond to it. Fortunately, fortunately, I pick up the first down. I get six yards just on huh. the first huh. down, which leads to a touchdown. Uh, to Larry Brown or tight end to give us 17 points in that game. But uh, anyway, so that was my contribution to uh, Super Bowl. But Frank Bull gains 140. Yes, sets the record. Once again, the glory. And uh, you can only fool your uh, ex-teammate Alan Page so many times. That's right. uh, You can only sucker him so many times as it it turned out. And uh, you mentioned about that the uh, the second time in NFL history, Zonker and Morris in '72, the 2,000 yard runners. And I'll venture to say that you're the only 1,000 yard rusher in the history of the NFL, Rocky, with two different shoe sizes. Well, that's right. And uh, and, and as my teammates would say, that uh, never made a move. That <laughs> never made a move. Straight ahead. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And. Uh, I got to ask you about one game, your 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 signature game in terms of uh, rushing. You, you towed it 35 times for 163 yards. It was against Green Bay. The only problem with the storybook there is if we made the movie about that game, we'd have to move the game to Lambeau instead of County Stadium. But that's right. Yeah, other no. than that, you played against the team, but I'm sure you grew up worshiping with those packet tapes. Of course it was. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get a chance to play. You get a chance to play the Packers. Played against them. We didn't play them that often. Played against them once no. before in an exhibition game, um, <clears throat> but this was down in Milwaukee when they split the the season uh, between the two uh, stadiums, and so we were coming home. I didn't know I had that many relatives back in Wisconsin <laughs> until we came into town. Tickets. They all come out of the woodwork. They all come out of the woodwork. But it was um, it was. Uh, 
So it was a game. I mean, so it was a game, as you were saying, uh, everything that I carried, everything that I worked, every, I mean, everything, every play worked. I mean, for me to be able to gain 163 yards uh, in, in that game was fine. Mike McCoy, remember that name? Yes, Notre Dame defensive tackle. Was playing for the Green Bay Packers at the time, and he was a defensive tackle in that game. And so I see him in the offseason. I see him in the offseason after that game. The first thing he says to me, he said, where did you come from? I go, what do you mean? He said, no, where did you come from? He said, we, we had our defensive scheme plan, you know, everything against you. So you were, you know, you weren't even mentioned. You weren't even, you weren't part of our defensive game plan at all. So, so where did you come from? And, and I'm thinking, well, it was all Franco, it was all Franco and all Franco. And then uh, it, uh, and so it was like, now I understand why I gained 163 yards because I wasn't even on the radar. The, you know, I, I did run one play and I was looking at the linebacker and he looks confused. He said he'd never, he had never seen this play before. <laughs> Well, well, for the record, Franco. Yeah. I'm going to take it because I was such a great running back. Yeah, exactly. It's absolutely. It looks look looks better in the rearview mirror as you look back. <laughs> That's and, right. uh, Franco only had 16 yards in that game, and and Bradshaw only threw for 84. So thank God they had you. <laughs> That's right. It was a, a, a tough tough day for uh, the uh, the big guns there, and. Uh, well, you know, everybody, every kid dreams about being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And you, you, you did that more than once. But the, 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 the touchdown pass that put the Steelers ahead in Super Bowl 13, it, it, was, uh, it was a little bit of improvisation or it was kind of modified from that was originally supposed to look like. But uh, well, that's your, true. yeah, your vertical leap at 5'9 was pretty good. That was excellent. So the play was third down. Uh, and one, third and one on the six-yard line. And so it was a play-action play. And uh, basically, I was to go down the line of scrimmage. Bradshaw would fake to Franco into the line, pull it out, hit me very quickly, catch it over my shoulder, turn up field, pick up the first down, first pick up a yard, two yards, whatever I could get. Uh, that was the play. So when the ball was snapped, I broke out of my stance. but. Uh, Didi Lewis, who was their outside linebacker, linebacker yeah. jumped across the line of scrimmage to stop the run play. Well, he took my path away from me, so the best I could do was to kind of sneak inside of him uh, and go upfield. In, in the meantime, he faked a Franco. Didi had to spin around because he had me in man-to-man -man coverage when he found out it was going to be a pass play. Bradshaw is rolling to his right. Um, Sideline was looming up. As I like to tell people, larger than life, uh, Neanderthal beings chasing him down from the opposite <laughs> side. And then uh, all of a sudden, all time stood still, and our eyes met across the field, 30 yards se separating us. Yeah. We released the ball, maybe a little too quickly, maybe a little too high. And it came floating into that end zone. And as it came floating into that end zone, I leaped, as you had said all five foot, nine and a half inches of me, all my might straight up in the air. I don't know, 18, 
19, 20 feet. I kind of forget after all these years. Threw my hands <laughs> up. 20 feet. And boom, it stuck. And I was as surprised as anybody. And we came down for <laughs> that touchdown and uh, gave us a lead. And as I say, a lead we never relinquished. That's right. <laughs> so, the, 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 winning, the winning points in that, in that Super Bowl, the fourth Super Bowl. <laughs> but the interesting thing there, yeah. Bernie, the interesting thing is this. I had a chance not to look at the, uh, not to look at the, 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 the game, but I, went, I was looking at the statistics of the game. Of the mm. game, and so yeah. you like to, you know, you forget what you do, or you like to, you know, kind of say, you know, how many, how many times I carry the ball, what did I do, or so on. But <clears throat> I looked at the statistics, and I'm going, oh, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I carried the ball twice <laughs> for one yard. <laughs> I caught one pass, one pass, one pass, and uh, and recovered one onside kick. That, that at the end of the game. Stats for the, the, the <laughs> that was my stats. But as I tell people, it got me on the cover of sports. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no jinx there. That's no for sure. <laughs> no, 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 no doubt. You 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 retired in 1980 and uh, a decade, uh, just a re remarkable NFL career, and uh, very emotional with your family. You talk about your family coming out of the woodwork in, in Milwaukee, but your family uh, surrounding you. Your relationship with the, the, the city of Pittsburgh, it's almost a perfect symmetry with, you know, the guy's got glasses, he's, he's losing his hair, smokes, swears, maybe has a beer. I mean, you were the perfect guy for Pittsburgh. As we say at the track, Rock, there's horses for courses. You were the perfect guy. Perfect. Well, you know, it, it was kind of like I grew up in that perfect atmosphere back in Appleton. I mean, it, it was yeah. just the same kind of people, you know, they're blue-collared, hardworking mill people. Uh, they love their bars <laughs> and they love their sports teams, no matter how badly they may be doing um, and or as, as well as they're doing. And so, you 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 know, you settled here and, uh, and I made this home. And so that was great. I had the chance to um continue and did some broadcasting uh, for the local NBC station here for several years afterwards and helped me make the transition back into uh, you know quote civilian world and uh, but but the the fan base no matter what the fan base you know loved their 70s and loved their Steelers and so you were part of that and uh, and because of it um you know right or wrong they they, they, they embraced you and made you uh, feel much a part of their community as, uh, as if you were born and raised here in Pittsburgh. And your relationship with, uh, with, with, with Chuck Knoll, you got that postcard. Aunt Rooney wasn't kidding. They were one in 13 when he sent you that <laughs> postcard. They were having a bad year. That's right. They were. Yeah. But your relationship with Chuck Knoll, obviously one of the iconic figures of the NFL. You know, I, I, so the relationship with Chuck, I don't think was any different than other relationships, you know, that Chuck had with his players. Chuck was a, um, um, maybe the right, for me, he was the right coach at the right time. He was, he was um, very, um, how can I say this? He, he, tempered, he was very even tempered. Uh, he was not a yeller or a screamer. Uh, he was a rationalized person. Uh, he had a thought 
process about how things are achieved and 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 how they should be done. Um, and he expected professionalism from his players. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so for me, that 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 fit in. You didn't have. I should say this. We 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 all talked about. You know, how do you define Chuck Noll? You know, how do you define him? And so um, you, you were talking. So I, I asked Terry Hanratty this question yeah. once, okay? And sure. uh, Terry and I, um, for those listeners out there, as it may mentioned, we played at Notre Dame, but we also played together with Pittsburgh. Yeah, and you um, couldn't get rid of him. No, I couldn't get rid of him. So he was there for six years um, in Pittsburgh um, as, a, as he and Bradshaw were one and two quarterbacks, and he was a backup uh, before he went to Tampa. But anyway, he said uh, that was, you know, Chuck uh, was that kind of a guy, meaning that he would, um, he's not a yellow screamer, he was just an even-tempered guy, but he just always made you feel a little bit uneasy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So there was just, he, there was, he, he, he wasn't a, a rah-rah guy. He wasn't embracing. He wasn't a, a ball player's coach. You know, he was the coach. Um, and he had uh, a great respect, um, but he also had a job to do. I mean, he also had decisions to be made, so he couldn't be the buddy-buddy kind of guy, you know. Uh, uh, but he respected and um, ultimately um loved all of his players and what happens and what happens and happened to the Steelers in the early part of the eighties, when you start making that transition. Um, and what happens is that you kind of hang on to players longer than maybe they need to be hung on to. Right. And so all of a sudden you have a weakness because you have no backups or you don't have any young people coming in, uh, and they're not necessarily doing the job, but, how do you how do you how do you get rid of them? <laughs> you right, you know. And so Chuck had that whole um, um, sensitivity about him and his players, and and um, so I respect Chuck um, for his knowledge, for his ability to um, get it across to the players and and get a, exactly what he wanted to get accomplished, and he did. And, and to and a different guy than than Ara, you played oh, for another yeah. legend. Yeah, right, much right. different. Yeah, much different. And Ara, you know, but they they were both. I should say this, you know, and every coach that I had was, you know, uh, very. Um, they they knew the game. They understood the game. Um, they had their own mindset and how the game should be won and how you handle, you know, people. Ara. You know, so eras, you know, you've got a, you got a group of 18 to 22 year old kids, you know, right. and, and trying to get the most out of them. And they're changing every, you know, every two years or, you know, you're getting a new batch coming in. And so you've got to, you know, uh, grow or, or make it sound like professional where you got, you know, 18 that you can keep for a period of time. But in college, it's, you got to motivate each and every one of those kids. And Errol was very good at doing that. And he was very good at his position. And he was very good uh, at uh, designated authority amongst his uh, assistant coaches, allowing them to uh, have an interaction uh, and a voice in in how an offense or defense should run. So um, so Errol was that, that that kind of a guy. Um, and so, uh, 
as, as Chuck was a little different, but on a professional level, uh, had to handle the guys differently. You mentioned about uh, your work in, in the media. You've been uh, an author, as we're going to talk about here. Uh, as, uh, as we wrap up, uh, you've been an actor. You've been a motivational speaker. Uh, and also uh, a number of charitable causes uh, I know that you've been involved with. Uh, particularly, uh, you work, not surprisingly, with veterans and, uh, and uh, with the Vietnam veterans, but also uh, with veterans in the military in particular. I know with the reissue of your book, uh, Fighting Back, and also the Beating the Odds Foundation. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, I think part of it, you know, part of it is that there's a certain responsibility um, that a player has to give back to his community. I mean, for so long, you're in, 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 in quote, the public eye. Um, and hopefully there's something you can do with that recognition to help uh, communities or, or, or become involved. And so over the years, uh, I, you know, I have become involved in, 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 in that regard. So Beating the Odds Foundation was one of the earliest ones. It was 30 years that uh, Rocco Skelzy um, uh, started and I worked together in, in Beating the Odds Foundation. Beating the Odds is basically as, is, is helping students, helping students to define um, outside of the curriculum in the schools to define what they want to do, the stepping stones of success uh, to be able to get them through programs, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's something that um, the school district has to buy into and it's a third party relationship um, because we don't necessarily get that in our school systems today yeah. on how to be successful. Uh, how to expand, what do you want to do? Uh, and we give them those opportunities um, and call the quarterbacks of life as well. So we've worked, uh, for instance, with NASA for the mm -hmm. last eight years, uh, a student initiatives, working with NASA on a project. And they have to do their research um, a, 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 along with NASA. And then eventually they get a chance to go down to uh, NASA and to present their papers um, to uh, um, to the astronauts um, that uh, that are working there, so it's it's kind of that interaction. So uh, they've done um, so. Beating the Odds Foundation is a, you know, a wonderful. We've worked with school districts around the country, um, incorporating um, our stepping stones of success and the programs that. Uh, that come with it. So that helps those students become a little bit better, you know, and, uh, and then from a military point of view, and the biggest thing in the military yeah. point of view <clears throat> is I work with a, <clears throat> with a, a foundation called a warriors to citizens and it's transitional. And one of the biggest things are, 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 are military people making transitions back into civilian life and the support mechanism that they need to be able to do so. Um, in all transitions, no matter what we do, uh, when we're, <laughs> as we go through life, we make transitions from high school to college, college to the workforce. Uh, you know, how do I, how do I do it from job to job? Um, and the military people specifically have, you know, have some issues. So part of, you know, part of the statistic, you know, you, you talk about our, our, our deployment, uh, issues today and uh, because of because of that divorce rates have been up um yep. you have isolation you have mental health 
problems um, because of, well, Vietnam veterans were Agent Orange. Uh, and, and so from a combat uh, syndrome uh, of, of coming back and then having multiple uh, deployments does take a toll. And so we're, and, and so you get this whole psychological built up of a, of a uh, of military people that they can't go any place because they don't want their superiors to know that they might be thinking about a weakness in their you know system, you mm-hmm. know that macho uh, you know feeling. Well, it doesn't happen to me, but it does. So where do you go? How do I deal with it? How do I take care of my family uh, without having to uh, uh, report it to my superiors? And so these are programs that have been established. Um, within the different branches uh, that become very important and, um, and, and just become an awareness factor that uh, there's solutions out there. So in throughout the year, it, there's, you know, there's a lot of charities out there that support our military and do some wonderful work within their communities. Um, and so uh, I just, you know, tell people that, um, to, to be aware of what they might be and, and how they can help them uh, no matter where they live, uh, because there's somebody that needs a hand up um, and in uh, a support mechanism, and so um, your money's work wonders in that in, in that regards. So you you just give back, you know. That's it, as best you possibly can. Absolutely, and the book uh, that you reissued, uh, "Fighting Back," uh, is it also involved with a fundraising campaign? If nobody. Uh, out there has not had the opportunity. If anybody out there hasn't had the opportunity, you should check it out. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's so yeah, so we re, we reissued and redid uh, the book Fighting Back, which I originally did uh, back in 1974 um, when we came the first Super Bowl and, and, and came yeah. out in 75. Um, and uh, so then we, we did a whole reissue of it, uh, added new chapters. Um, and uh, some pictures, but anyway, it's, uh, uh, and so the the, the, the proceeds um, go to uh, military organizations uh, here uh, in Pittsburgh specifically um, uh, to uh, Veterans Leadership Program, uh, which is a, a local um, a group that's been around, started by Vietnam veterans uh, some 30 years ago, hands-on, they do wonderful work in our community specifically. So, uh, the money goes to, uh, to, to them. Great. And, uh, uh also if, uh, if people haven't uh, checked out the return on E60, uh, it's, it's, it's moving, it's inspirational. As you look back to your return to, uh, the hip, hip duck Valley from yeah. two years ago, Rocky, the experience, was it worth it to go back for the catharsis of that moment? Because it was a difficult moment for you on many levels. Well, yeah, and and, uh, and no one knew. I didn't know that that moment was going to happen, or what was to ex- what uh, what I was what I was going to expect, or what did ESPN? And I was when ESPN approached me to be able to say, "Hey, let's go back and 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 do this," and so it would have been their fiftieth anniversary. And I go, okay, fine. You know, so we worked out our schedules that we were able to uh, tie everybody up um, at the time. And so I said, but, you know, I said, unlike the majority of Vietnam veterans specifically, who, when they came back from their uh, uh, duty of uh, fighting over in Vietnam, 
had to repress their feelings. I mean, our society did not accept them. Uh, they tied the military into the conflict. And so the military soldier uh, was spat upon, looked down upon uh, as baby killers and so on and so on. It was, it was, it was you were told to change into civilian clothes uh, just to make it easier on yourself and so on and so on. So that whole, that whole group of people come back and they repress their feelings. They go about their lives, go back to school, um, get a job, get married, raise kids, but they have nothing to, sh they, they weren't able to share their feelings. I come back and I become a story because I come back to a high profile industry trying to make the team of football. Whether I made it or not, it becomes the story. Uh, this kid trying to overcome these obstacles to be able to do that. So because of it, I had to answer questions. How did you feel? What was it like? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so somewhat of it was a, a catharsis for me uh, to have to have to do that. At least I got a chance to talk about it and, and had a platform. And also because you were coming back and you did make the team and you then were perceived as a courageous young man. So it was kind of a positive um, feedback that you got. Um, and so I said, no, nah, I've been telling that story for 40 years. <laughs> said, so I don't know what to expect when we go back to Vietnam. Yeah. So they did all their homework and went back to the exact spot, you know, where um, uh, it, it, it was to take place, where the firefight was and where I got hit in the open race paddies and so on. And so, uh, you know, after 50 years, was this the place or not? It was kind of like the area. As much as I can remember it, it kind of fits the uh, geographical area and what I saw there. And I thought, yeah, okay, fine. This is where it came out of the woods. You know, it's changed and there's a little overgrown, you know, in, in, in those rice paddies and it's different because it was a life-changing experience within a matter of seconds. Sec yeah. It's not as if you'd been there forever and understood. So I said, okay, fine. And um, then, and so we started talking about it uh, with Tom Rinaldi, uh, who is the host. And uh, then he asked me the one question. He just asked me the one question, which was, how do you feel? And Bernie, I'll tell you what, out of the blue, I mean, just out of the blue, I don't know where this emotion came from. It came from the bottom of my soles of my feet up through my body. I could feel it. I mean, I could just feel it overcoming me. My, my, my sense of being and, and all of a sudden I, I start to cry and it's just emotional um, about that. And I'm, you know, part of me is thinking what's going on here? Uh, and, you know, and the other part was saying, why are you doing this? Uh, and I just couldn't get it. Finally, finally, I, you know, I was able to get to a position where I could control myself. And, but ooh, I have to tell you, I really felt sick. I mean, just sick, yeah. sick like my inside. Oh, and I told uh, Rinaldi, I said, Tom, I said, I gotta, I gotta sit down. And so, um, and he said, okay, fine. Well, let's sit down over here. And I sit down and my blood pressure just drops like this and I pass out. And I come to 
And so I got now five adult men looking at me with these wide eyes, like, whoa, what happened here? And, um, uh, and so then we, uh, we had to go back. We had to go back uh, and get an IV and, and, and get the doctor check me out and so on. But the whole process afterwards, and I got to thinking of what took place, what took place and why was maybe an insight, just a little insight of what some of our military personnel have to go through when we talk about post-traumatic stress. Right, uh, yeah. Impact that it, that it has, uh, as I understand, you know, is that one day it's like this, is like uh, one day you can open the door, walk out of your apartment and just fall off a cliff, you know, uh, like geez. this. And that was kind of the experience I had to some degree. And I thought, wow, um, if, if people have to live with this uh, all the time. Uh, yeah, perspective. Understand. I can understand, you know, um, I can understand sometimes the suicide rates. I, I can understand the problems that uh, some of our returning soldiers, you know, have done. So yeah. that's, you know, that's what took place. Now, when they added the whole thing, now I have to tell you this. So we have, okay. so yep. they, they do the whole thing. They get the 30 minutes when we get the return. Okay, so we get the return. And um, so I'm listening to it. So we watch it, you know, so yeah, okay, fine. So I'm watching it. And then they go. Uh, because of heat stroke, it takes a toll on his body. And I'm thinking to myself, heat stroke. That's right. They reference that. They reference heat stroke. Yeah. Heat stroke. It sounds like I'm some 80 year old guy that couldn't stand. It was a heat stroke thing. It wasn't. It was a no. Okay. So at least it was an emotional, oh, you know, an emotional movement at the time. It's a heat stroke. Sounds like women. You know, he couldn't stand. And it was. And so oh. I, that was my, that was my, my laugh uh, out of the, the whole oh. thing. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, because you know, they did reference that. I'm glad you pointed yes, that did. out. That's, That's uh, right. <laughs> we, we, we get the rest of the story, Paul Harvey. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We get it live. Exactly. Well, uh, you, you said back in the 80s uh, at Sports Illustrated on the concept of heroism, mostly illusion, you're scared, you react, nothing out of the ordinary. I want to believe in the illusion. I like the concept of heroes. I think we need the inspiration. And if I can be a symbol of something good for some people, even if I'm not exactly what they think I am, well, that's okay. Embrace the opportunity. Do you still feel that way today, some 30 plus years later? I Yes, I do. You know, I mean, because... Um, you know, really, I mean, probably, and I maybe redefine my, 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 my definition of a hero in, in, in a very simple way. It's, uh, you know, somebody who does what needs to be done when it has to be done yeah. without thinking about the consequences right? or the how or why. It's that moment of reaction, you know, then all of a sudden we need to put a label on him because he did whatever was his. Now, okay, so we've got to be a hero. But it's right. really that moment, and anybody can 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 do it, you know, at, at at the time. You just do what needs to be done, you know, without thinking about it, and so on. Um, and um, and so it's nothing necessarily 
special except for the fact that um, whatever was accomplished, you know, was was, was accomplished at that at, at, at that time in, in the end result. But yeah, I, I feel the same. Destiny's no matter of chance, it's a matter of choice. It's not a right. thing to be waited for. It's a thing to be achieved. William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> That's remember right. that quote. Yeah, yes. I remember that quote. Yes. And that is, and that is true. Yep. Uh, yep. And uh, we leave the final word to Terry Bradshaw. Who else but a more <laughs> eloquent statesman? How can you not admire Rocky Blyer? He had a dream and he wasn't going to quit on it. And those are the guys you want to play with. <laughs> that, was, that was a great quote, and uh, and I yep. and I still have to thank him every time I see him for that. <laughs> probably the checks probably in the mail. That's right. in the mail. That's it for, that, for that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. And I'm sure that Fuzzy Thurston's left guard bar couldn't hold an old style to Blyas. That's my final word. <laughs> Fuzzy Thurston, what a great what a great place that was. Uh, yep. The left the, guard was the name of his the bar. Left that guard, that's it. Yep. You know, exactly. That. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Rocky, this has been uh, this has been quite a journey when you consider from Appleton to South Bend uh, to uh, to the Heap Duck Valley to Pittsburgh and. And uh, it's, it's been one of the most amazing American journeys, remarkable. Uh, I'm going to start with, usually you start with the on-field, but uh, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Distinguished American, and oh, by the way, four-time Super Bowl oh, champion. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a privilege, as I, as I certainly thought it would be here today. Thank you, Vernon. Thank you. It was a, I enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Anytime. Thank, thank you very much. Right. What can you say? Robert Patrick, Rocky Blair. And uh, played the game well with us here on the games people play today. I uh, want to uh, thank Andy Bernstein, our executive producer, uh, the crew here with Amy and George at our studio location. And of course, uh, Vintage Brand to uh, invite you to vintagebrand.com to relive, relive the game, retro sports designs to remember, inspire, and share authentic sports moments. And you can check out our games people play page at vintagebrand.com. So for my guest, Rocky Blyer, uh, this is Bernie Corbett saying, play the game well, everyone. Vintage Brand is the story of American sporting culture, combining our rich history, traditions, rituals, and pageantry. Weaving together more than a century of American sports memories and images, it defines what tradition really means. Come experience the history and rituals. Remember and honor the legends. Feel the passion and pageantry of the past. Welcome to the greatest collection of American sports history and images, all reproduced on fan apparel and merchandise. Welcome to Vintage Brand. Vintage Brand is the story of American sporting culture, combining our rich history, traditions, rituals, and pageantry. Weaving together more than a century of American sports memories and images, it defines what tradition really means. Come experience the history and rituals. Remember and honor the legends. Feel the passion and pageantry of the past. Welcome to the greatest collection of American sports history and images, all reproduced on fan apparel and merchandise. Welcome to Vintage Brand. Welcome everyone to this week's edition of The Games People Play with Bernie Corbett. I'm Bernie Corbett. I'm here with my executive producer, Andy Bernstein. And uh, our guest this week, and they throw the 
term hero around maybe a little too loosely, but we have here Memorial Day week, a true and bona fide American hero. Uh, most resumes would lead with four-time Super Bowl champion, not this guy. We're talking about Robert Patrick, uh, better known as Rocky Blyer, Andy. Yeah, Rocky is, uh, you know, as a Steeler fan growing up, I remember two things about Rob, uh, Rocky Blyer. A, the fighting back book about uh, the paperback. It was a paperback. Mm. And the pictures in there were unbelievable. Rocky in Vietnam, playing at um, Notre Dame. And then the movie had Robert Urich playing Rocky Blyer. Spencer for hire. Yes. Right. And they had um, Terry Hanratty was his roommate. And there was like a scene where there was like, uh, they got a little too close for comfort in there. I don't know if you remember that, but, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. you know, as a Steeler fan, it was such a huge part of the four championships. You can't, you know, how can we do a show without talking to Rocky Blyer? And, and full disclosure, Andy has a very long and deep-rooted history in Pittsburgh, in the fabric of the Pittsburgh as a sports town, and particularly how far your family goes back with Steelers season tickets. Yeah, we've had Steelers season tickets in my family since 1970. And, um, you know, Rocky and Franco, you know, there was Franco's Italian Army and, and Rocky, and it was just, you know, he was the everyman for Pittsburgh. I mean, he really represented, which is really interesting because when you think about it, a lot of the players they had really represented mm. the city, the blue collar work ethic. And I, I think like people don't know, he had a thousand points. Yeah. 1976. Right. So yes. you had two guys. Yes. Second time in NFL history. Right. Talk, and, yeah. and, when, and so, I mean, I, we wanted to have Rocky because we had talked about, you know, I mean, when we talk about people's journeys going from starting, you know, playing and coming up and then all the things that they've done in their mm-hmm. life. But this guy had a stop, in but something in between. So um, I'm excited because it's going to be great to hear from him. Indeed, it will be. An American hero with us this week on the Games People Play, Rocky Blyer. Welcome, Rocky. Hey, Bernie, thank you. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Real pleasure, real pleasure to have you here, uh, Rocky. And uh, as we do on the games people play, uh, we go back to the beginning and uh, your roots, if you will, and uh, your roots firmly planted in middle America, Appleton, Wisconsin. I can remember as a kid watching the Steelers and watched all your big games because I'm a Giants fan. And the Giants okay. never played in a big game in the 70s. You played in all of them. That's right. But I can remember that introduction when you'd still give your hometown and Kurt Gowdy, Rocky Blyer, Appleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> we, we, take, we, we take you back to Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, cold winters, about four feet of snow, right. uh, about 30 miles from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, a very unique uh, situation as far as uh, growing up, the family home and the family business were very closely intertwined. Very much so. They were on top of one another, or so they, so they say. Yeah, so we grew up in the bar business. So I, I, I grew up in the bar business. My dad opened a bar in 1945. I came along a year later um, and uh, throughout to all my, my life during the period of time until they 
uh, finally retired and sold the place, um, was there in Appleton uh, at the bar, Blyers. Blyers Bar at the corner of Walnut and Lawrence in Appleton, Wisconsin. Indeed, uh, the case. Uh, and once again, very much uh, middle America. And uh, you were not, not surprisingly, and I'm a very proud dinosaur. I still get the two Boston papers delivered every morning. And uh, you excelled uh, as, as a paper boy and worked on your throwing arm early on. <laughs> we, yeah, you know, that was it. There was a friend of mine who had the paper out and he needed help. And so uh, um, it was a, so one, one, one school one school year, I, I, I helped him. Yeah, so folding, so I learned how to fold papers in the morning. He had dropped off. We had a wagon. I had to fill the wagon in. You know, get up early, and we pulled the wagon and, and threw the papers up on the, on the porches. And, and so the route that he had, and then then we had to go collect money every week. And so he had a little walk. Uh, and so for me, it was great experience just to be able to go through that. Absolutely, get you out of the bar a little bit, a couple hours a day, anyway. Yeah, that's right. Right. It, 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 absolutely. And uh, as far as the nickname, uh, the nickname couldn't have come any earlier as far as the nickname Rocky with your dad. Well, that's true. I mean, that, that is. So let's let's just give you the atmosphere of the bar. So we're back in the 40s. Now, Appleton is a, is a, is a relatively small Midwestern town. It, it's a it's a paper mill town. It's a mill town, basically, and uh, on the rivers. Um, and uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of the, the people would come all the guys would come from the from the mills you know so dad opened the bar at eight o'clock in the morning you know and closed it at one o'clock at night um and uh, you know start that process all over but anyway so i as i said i was the first born of the family uh and so like all firstborns and all proud of our, our kids but you know when you're the firstborn guys are coming to the bar and they go hey bob that's my father's name. How was uh, how's that new kid of yours? Oh, dad would be very proud. He said, "Oh, you got to see him. I mean, he's got all these little muscles. He looks like a, uh, a he looks like a rock sitting in that group." <laughs> so they would come back later on, and they go, "Hey, hey, Bob, how's that rock of yours?" We go, "What do you mean? You know, your kid. You know, you." So that's it. I, that's how I got it. And so everything I was referred to as rock, and, and so that was it. I, I got it for the rest of my life. That was going to say, begin, and then pass, and passed it on sort of to your son. You had to do a little work with ancient Hebrew for your son's name. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, so, you, you know, well, you did your history, I tell you this. So my son, so my son comes and, uh, you know, for some reason, and it was me and I knew the kitchen the butt at the time. So my name is Robert Patrick, as you had mentioned. Um, and I just didn't want him to be a junior and I wanted to have his own identity, um, and much like Rock gave me my own identity. So, um, uh, <laughs> I was looking for words, names, and so on, and I come across this called Adri, A-D-R-I, Adri. Adri. Mm -hmm. That's a, a Hebrew name, a, a name meaning from the rock. From the rock. <laughs> from the rock. And so... Yes, uh, it was named. It was like it's like a, a, a it was like a boy named Sue. If, he, <laughs> if right. he ever tells you the story, it was like <laughs> people would call him Adrian, Adrian. It was never Adrian, so it was yep. some bastardization. It, with apologies to Johnny Cash. There you go. That's right. <laughs> you know, as 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 I researched 
one of the things that was noted, when I say that your life was intertwined with the bar, you actually had a cast of characters that were renting rooms as part of your living arrangement. Well, you know, and that, and that was at that period of time, and people may not, well, older people will remember, but at that period of time. So on our property that dad rented to buy, so when he got into the bar business, was on the, on the corner was the bar, was the bar, and behind it was a, a kitchen, a bedroom, and a little living room, and that's where he and mom lived. And upstairs were rooms uh, that had uh, that had men rumors. And then on the same property, we had another building that also had uh, an apartment in it, but also rooms on the second floor for to expand. Part of that helped pay the rent um, and, and, and get mom and dad through. So in 1957, um, I'm 11 years old, uh, they decided to remodel, oh, I should say growing up then. So as we got a bigger family, I should say, we moved upstairs, we moved upstairs. So mom and dad had a master bedroom in front of it. Uh, and then uh, we parlayed each of those little rooms uh, into bedrooms for, uh, for the kids. But <laughs> in this case, we still had four guys that, uh, that, yeah. that lived up there. Um, Joe and John Reedsey and Pete Schaefer and Hammerhead. Uh, with the four guys, that was that, there were the four guys that had the rooms at the at the latter part, and, and it was just part of the you know it was just part of the deal. One bathroom, just think about it. One bathroom upstairs. So most of the time they spent in the bar. Yes. <laughs> and they all had jobs and um, and so on. So that was. Uh, uh, I, I do tell a story. This is quite interesting. It was that uh, you know. So my room, my room was right next to uh, uh, Hammerhead's, Hammerhead's room, right next to Hammerhead's room. And he was kind of, a, he, he was down at the bar. He was a, uh, he was a uh, card player. They played sheep's head, you know, and each bar had a little corner where they played poker, you know. So, anyway, fine. Uh, so my sister, my sister finally got her own room uh, when Hammerhead died. <laughs> so one night she was sharing a room with uh, my other sister. Then the next night, she was tucked into <laughs> this brand new bed as a as a, a big time girl in Hammerhead's room. And so so I, I, and she she did have some nightmares. They lasted like forty years. But anyway, so she's a <laughs> but that was life at the time. What what a cast of characters! I I I I noted Pete was a traveling salesman, but nobody really knew what he saw. No, that's right. <laughs> I don't remember what he's, what he's, but he was Nobody gone, did. you know, so he would be on the road and he'd, he'd come back and he'd be on the road. And so that was it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, they were just in my mind. They were, they were, as everybody was downstairs, it was a cast of characters. It, it, it certainly might. My cultural touch points, Rock, were Hemingway's A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, the Iceman Cometh, the O'Neill play, and maybe a little bit of uh, the Piano Man, Billy Joel, sprinkled in for music. Yeah, that's right. Very much so. So yeah. you have to understand is that we did have a jukebox in the bar, mm -hmm. and uh, um, my folks would 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 declare the fact is that that jukebox saved them, mm -hmm. um, uh, or they made enough money to be able to pay the rent at times. <laughs> 
by the by the by the nickels that would be dropped into the jukebox. Wow! So it became the center of of of, of, of the bar. People would be playing the jukebox at the time, and you know, the later the night got, the more people became more friendly. <laughs> the more music they were playing, they'd be singing, they'd be dancing. Oh yeah! So it was a it was a it was a wild time. Yep, absolutely. Get a little bit more gregarious. It's funny how that works out with the uh, right. mix yes, of alcohol right. and the music. Yes, and, alcohol, yes, you know, right. Yeah. Basically, we perpetuated the planet through that, Rocky. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, you went to uh, Catholic High School, Z right. Xavier High School, and uh, three-time uh, all-conference, two-time all-state running back. Uh, also played linebacker, defensive back. You were all-conference uh, playing on the other side of the ball at the same time. Uh, you were two-time captain in all-conference in basketball and uh, excelled uh, at, the, uh, at the high school level. Where, where does it uh, rank with the Super Bowl TV, the touchdown you scored as a sophomore against Promontre? Uh, are they about even? Well, it's about even. That's it. So let, let me, to, to, to your listeners and viewers, put this into perspective. So we got to go back. Uh, as us baby boomers were now coming of age, uh, uh, going into high school. So um, there was a great expansion of, 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 of building of high schools and uh, uh, um, especially Catholic schools. Um, and all of a sudden we had, um, this was the latter part of the fifties uh, and uh, they built a brand new high school. Um, that uh, was, and let me see, the first, uh, 1960, I was there as a freshman. So it opened in 58. It opened in 58, two, two classes, freshman and sophomore. 59 was three classes. And then um, uh, as a freshman, as a freshman, we were then a four-class, four fully-fledged school. So this happened throughout the state of Wisconsin. So now we developed, or they or arranged a whole new conference uh, called the Fox Valley uh, Catholic Conference. And um, so it was interesting because all of a sudden, um, parochial education was big back in Wisconsin at the time. We had, when we did have our public, you know, <laughs> we had our public. Public school. It's just I was, the reason I was laughing was is that when I was growing up, there was um, there was only kind of two kind of kids that I knew in your neighborhood: yep. Catholic kids and public kids. Yep. <laughs> so that was the dividing line. <laughs> the dividing line. <laughs> and so we had a big draw, and I should say, coming to Xavier High School as a brand new high school from the surrounding areas. The closest other Catholic school was over in Menasha. Now. It doesn't seem far. Menasha is probably 10 miles away uh, from Appleton, but at the time was like uh, on the other side of the world. Um, so all of a sudden we got a whole lot of great athletes that came from other areas and were drawn to Xavier School. And so, uh, and we also had a coach uh, by the name of Torchy Clark. Yep. Who was a redhead guy. That's right. Red Fire, fiery <laughs> redhead. Yes, he was. And um, and and he came and he became the, the basketball coach and, and the football coach. 
Uh, and because of, and so because of that, you know, we got the conference. And as you were saying, um, the success of that team uh, all of a sudden started to, 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 to develop. Um, and so the big game was against uh, Premontre, was a big Catholic uh, school up in Green Bay, dominated, you know, the Catholic League for years. Um, uh, and so it came down to two undefeated teams that, that both of us um, had, had, had got a chance to play. And so I score uh, the winning touchdown, and there was a picture of me going down the sidelines uh, with my left foot. You have to understand my left foot on the line, right on the inside line. My body was over the line, but it never touched. I came back, my balance, and went in and scored. And so that became the beginning for us winning the conference we did it we never lost a football game and actually during my whole career we were uh 96 and four wow we lost four basketball games one which happened to be the state final my senior year um and so we just kind of we just kind of dominated that whole area because of the athletes that and the and the students that we were able to draw to come to that school during that period of time. And under Torchy's leadership, oh yeah, it was it was quite a, a wild show. So because of that, <laughs> we, you know, because of that, you know, so you get become all all conference and you become all state. And when you start to win, you know, people start to recognize you. Um, I got a chance to become Parade All America. Ah, that's Parade, right. Parade All America. Now I tell you that only because yep. of the fact that. On the cover of Parade, which used to be a big, yep, um, still around magazine. Yep. Yeah, it's still around, but it used to be old yep. Parade magazine. And so <laughs> there, there would be like fifty-six, I think, fifty could be fifty-six uh, Parade All-American High School football players, you know. And so then it finally dawned on me was that oh, it represented every state and every <laughs> area <laughs> because it was a parade, right? You know? And so I, I, I tell people, I said, all you had to do was um, be able to <laughs> be able to pick your pick your state. For instance, for instance, now my running mate, uh, Franco Harris. Yep. Uh, and Jack Ham, uh, who played <laughs> linebacker for us. Oh yeah. Um, uh, neither one of them, I mean, they're in the hall, professional football hall of fame. Neither one of them ever made uh, all state in high school. Wow. And the reason is because he came from a densely populated area. Uh, yeah, exactly. For everybody. So I said, you know, you had, to, you, had to, you had to pick your selection. If you could be mediocre and from Montana, <laughs> tell you what, you'd be on that. <laughs> your odds are going to increase in Alaska if you were at Anchorage no, uh, West no, High School. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but because of that, you say, so because of that kind of recognition, you know, schools become uh, interested in you. And, uh, um, and so you get some scholarship offers uh, to continue your education. Um, and so one of those scholarship offers was the University of, of Notre Dame. Yep. Proud shirt that you're wearing there. So that's, that's great. Um, <laughs> Is that uh, and so I, I got a chance to 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 go to Notre Dame, which was an eye opener to begin with, you know, yeah. just because you think, okay, I'm coming, 
I remember the first time I met my classmates as we came to the university and we had a luncheon together and I looked around the room. Now they're 18 year old kids. I looked around the room and I thought to myself, I think you made a mistake. <laughs> Maybe you, I mean, they all look like uh, 40 year old men. I mean, they, their guys were bald, yeah. the guys had five o'clock shadows and, and, and I'm going, holy man, what am I doing here? So, um, uh, but we had a, a, obviously a brand new coach that year by the name of Vera Parsegian. And oh, yeah. all of a sudden we start to establish uh, some dominance because of his leadership and uh, get a chance to play uh, and make the team. And, you know, you mentioned this, the, the, the high school success, obviously uh, always curious about the recruiting process. For a kid in Catholic school in Wisconsin, was there any doubt about going? Once Notre Dame comes knocking, is all bets off? Did anybody else have interest or your mother just said you're going to Notre Dame? Okay, no. So the, the, the fact is this, okay, and I'm going back again because it's hard to fathom. I mean, unlike instant communication in which we have today, I mean, I mean, we're Zooming this. I mean, and we got, we got the web and and, um, you know, we follow schools and so on. It wasn't that way back then. So Notre Dame, Notre Dame was existed. They did not have, uh, through those 50s, uh, great success at Notre Dame. So That's they weren't right. necessarily, you know, uh, on the top of the list. They weren't winning games. Um, so University of Wisconsin was pretty good because they had gone mm -hmm. to the Rose Bowl in 61. And so I was in high school. And so you... And yep. they had some 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 pretty good teams, um, and so when it came to having to make this decision about where where we're going to go, I you know I was kind of lost. It wasn't as if I mean it's nice to be recognized, but it wasn't. I felt a responsibility to to visit the University of Wisconsin. I I didn't want to necessarily go to Minnesota or Michigan. There was no ties there. Or, um, yeah. or Illinois or Indiana or any of the big other Big Ten schools. Um, there was a a, a, a a friend who had stopped at the bar who um, uh, graduated from Boston College. And so he said, I can get you out to Boston College. And so, um, and then the Notre Dame recruiter, you know, came in. Probably the best piece of advice I got, and if I can, I'd share this, was that, and, uh, and possibly, Part of it is his sales pitch, but it made eminent sense to me. And he said, listen, you're going to get a lot of offers to go to a lot of different schools. And when you do visit that school, they're going to roll out the red carpet, show you a good time, everything that this university is about, and so on and so on. Well, by the time you have to make that decision, after you've seen seven or eight schools or whatever that may be, it all kind of runs together. So how do you decide which one do you want to go to? He said, my advice, he said, choose, choose three schools that you would like to graduate from. Not necessarily play for, but right. graduate from. Because anything can happen, you can get hurt, you know, but at least you got a scholarship and where would you like to? And I thought, well, that made eminent sense. And so I boiled down to the three, as you had made mention, or Wisconsin, uh, at Boston College and 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 Notre Dame, um, and so 
then, then I came back home and did, as I tell people, what every good Catholic boy was taught to do, and that was to go to church. You know, you got to go to church. Get the pray answer. For, yeah. Pray for your guidance and direction. And then, like every good Catholic boy, I did what my mother wanted me to do, and that was to go to Notre Dame. <laughs> so I ended up, ended up in Notre Dame. And part of, you know, and, and part of it was the lore, and part of it was an opportunity. And um, as I said, they weren't necessarily on the um on a, on a winning streak at that time. Right, they struggled, yeah. They struggled, very yep. much so. And so, Eric comes in and, uh, and, uh, and things, things start to turn around for, for Eric. Interesting thing, if I would get time for this, that what took place was not, uh, was one, the ability to recruit talent people around the Midwest. But the biggest thing was that in 1963, the NCAA changed the substitution uh, rules. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, you could only substitute three players at the change of the ball. Mm -hmm. Now they had free substitution. So yeah. all of a sudden you could take, uh, and what Era had was a plethora of people and move them around and use yep. them. So he would take, um, he had a big, and he had a couple big running backs that were that were a year ahead of me, uh, and he made one a defensive tackle, the other one an offensive tackle, um, and because they had great athletic ability, and so all of a sudden, you know, you get get into a position uh, and you get a chance to at least play. Second thing is that since we were Era's first recruited class. Okay, as sophomores, we were his future. Freshmen didn't play back then. That's right, ineligible, yep. Okay. We were ineligible, so as a sophomore, we were his future. So we became the backup for the second team. Uh, and so um, if you weren't starting and uh, playing, well, you weren't in that second team and it became, this is our future. And so I was playing right halfback and the starter was a senior um, and he got hurt last couple of games uh, of that year. And I got a chance to at least play and then came back my junior year and uh, got a chance to uh, um, continue to play in that spot. And then all of a sudden things, we, things, things open up for us. You know, we have uh, young players. Uh, uh, Terry Hanratty was a sophomore, and the Jim Seymour, big receiver, the Baby Bombers. They made the cover of uh, Time Magazine, and uh, we were undefeated and got a chance to play for the first time uh, a uh, like a mythical national championship game because of the century. Game of the century. Yeah. At that time, and, and again, there, there were no playoffs. There was no, you know, designation. It was uh, voted on by the, by the coaches and thus by the sports writers as well of that, first, of that number one position. And so here was a chance at the end of the season, two undefeated uh, teams, both ranked one and two, one and two in, 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 in different polls, got a chance to play on national television for that finality of, of who's going to be the national champion uh, was uh, Notre Dame versus Michigan State, and uh, it ended in a 10-to-10 tie. What? A tie? 
Yeah, there was no overtime. There was no sudden death. There was no playoff. There was nothing. It was that was it. It was it was it was football. That was it, and it ended in a tie. Fortunately for us, we had one game left. The following week, we played Southern Cal out in Southern Cal, and we beat Southern Cal fifty-one to nothing. Uh, and uh, and the vote was that Monday. <laughs> in the minds of the writers so we got voted <laughs> as National a champion yeah. it, it, but i'm now i'm sure i'm sure we'll get arguments from those michigan state people who are right. still around us still remember <laughs> <laughs> oh no you guys didn't get it we were joint blah 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 now we were the national and and that game that 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 game of the century rocky what an assemblage a talent uh alan page and jim lynch and your defense bubba smith and george webster on the other side and uh, you guys were playing short-handed you lost terry hanratty bubba smith landed on top of him early that's right uh coley o'brien's the answer to an eternal trivia question and and nick eddy one of the starters in the backfield with you what did he slip getting off the train on some ice so right. you guys that's were really right. down so you, on that, you know, you talked about the, 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 the talent pool. And just to put in perspective, there are, in that game, in that game, that afternoon, on that field, there were 36 future National Football League players. Wow. 31 <laughs> All-Americans. 10 first-round draft picks. Um, and so uh, it, 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 it ended in the ties, I said. But... Um, the, as you were saying, Terry Hanready got knocked out of the game, our starting quarterback. Uh, uh, um, Coley O'Brien, our backup quarterback, was just diagnosed, just diagnosed uh, as a diabetic. Now, today we go, oh, diabetic, you know, it doesn't mean anything. But at that time, hmm. there wasn't that much information. He was a diabetic. Oh, my goodness gracious, can he play the game? Can he get through the game? And all of a sudden, um, you know, he's on the sidelines to drinking orange juice and making sure his sugar levels are, are, are up. And so George Gedeke, our All-American center. Well, your center got hurt, too, in a punch. That's right. He, he got hurt yeah, in, the, in, the first, uh, in the first half or in the first quarter. He was out. Um, and as, as you said, Nick Getty, our All-American running back, had injured his shoulder uh, about two weeks prior. And so he was getting ready for this game. We went up on uh, to East Lansing, Michigan, on the train. And it was a cold, you know, it's a November and it was a sleeting day. And we got in and uh, Nick was right behind me as we were um, getting off the train. So you got metal, metal steps as you're walking down and they're all filled with ice. And, and as he took a step, he slipped uh, on that ice and he went to grab uh, the handrail, but his arm got stuck and <clears throat> re-injured that shoulder. So he never played in that game. And uh, uh, um, and so, so those were kind of our excuses, but but <laughs> it ended in a tie. But it ended in a tie. And so uh, uh, now, now I have to tell you this: hmm. probably the most, and I, I've said this in the past, in that game, the 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 most courageous guy was our center replacement, um, and. Uh, and uh, for uh, George Gedeke, um, yeah. Tim Monte was his name. Tim, he was a sophomore, and he and he <laughs> and was inserted in the game. 
early. So he weighed about 215 pounds, 220 pounds as a sophomore center. Well, they moved Bubba Smith from the defensive end over to nose tackle just to intimidate this sophomore. First game that he played in, and the biggest game in his life. And my goodness gracious, and I, it, 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 it is that, oh, he would come back into the huddle. His helmet would be skewed. There'd be grass in his face mask, and we'd have to clean him off, put him back. But Bubba Smith never penetrated that offensive line. So I give Tim Monty all the credit in the world for uh, for taking that spot and, and helping us <laughs> at least survive. stay equal and uh, survive and stay in that game. And the, the, the final question about that game is the question they're still asking 50 plus years later, <laughs> the play for the tie question. I mean, I look at it pragmatically. I mean, uh, you know, Aaron talked about we hadn't completed a pass and God knows how long we've missed seven out of eight. That was the smart thing to do when I look at it, because I'm a Notre Dame fan, but I thought it was a smart thing to do. Your well, take. That's right. You know, and so that is, so my take as, as a, as a player, and I have to say this in all honesty, because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you're, you're always taught, we go for the win, we go for the win, we go for the win, you know, no matter what, I mean, that's part of the deal. Um, and so this was the first time and we got the ball back uh, in, in our last drive. And um, so we were, we were controlling the ball, we were running the ball. Rather than dropping back, trying to go down, picking up big yardage, get ourselves in a position to kick a field goal or whatever it is to be able to win the game. No, it's that we're running the we're running the ball and controlling the ball and running the ball, getting the first down here. And um, I'm thinking we got to throw it, we got to throw it, we got to throw it. Well, all of a sudden the clock goes off and, um, and the game's over with. And so we go in a locker room, and so that was Era's. Um, Era's uh, response, you know, he said, you know, we worked hard. We worked hard um, to be able to get here. Michigan State had to beat us to be able to be number one. (laughs) It ended in the tie. I did not want to have them, because of the hard game you guys played, be in a position because they had a great field goal kicker, a barefooted kicker. I mean, he'd kicked a 53-yard field goal before. And so I didn't want to give him an opportunity to steal this game from us. So that's why we controlled the ball. That was Era's thought process during that period of time. Um, and uh, but it's still it's still kind of didn't smooth the fact that you didn't win. You know, I mean, there was a tie, and so um, uh, but that was the reason why we ran the ball out, as they say. And about a decade later in the Sugar Bowl, Arab pulls one of the, 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 the absolute opposite. Now, suddenly he was a Mississippi Riverboat gambler with the, uh, with the, with the pass to, to, to beat Alabama for the first down to Robin Weber. No, that's right. You know, and, maybe, and maybe he learned from the, the Michigan State game. You know, that's right. Totally I'm not going to take that grief. I'm not going to take that grief. Absolutely. Hey, hey you, you want to see me roll the dice? I'm rolling. I'm all in. Here comes the chips. <laughs> Well, it worked out into another Notre Dame national championship, so the results were the same. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you capped the Notre Dame uh, the next year in 1967. And uh, then, uh, I guess I got to describe it, you got your first of two letters. Uh, you get one a little bit later on. Uh, the first letter was from the Pittsburgh Steelers, 
And uh, there was 17 rounds in the NFL draft. And as you pointed out, I wasn't last. I was drafted the 16th round, 417 overall. And similarities to Notre Dame. You went to the Steelers at the time. Another dormant operation at the time. Very much so. You know, and I didn't know much about it. I, I, can, I can tell you this, though. The interesting thing was that we played the University of Pittsburgh my senior year in Pittsburgh. And so um, we stayed at the then Hilton Hotel uh, right down at the point. And it was Friday night before the game. And I um, usually the, the most of the team will go to a movie. Um, and except as a senior, you didn't have to go. So I decided to take a, a walk around. I can remember walking out uh, of the, the hotel, kind of looking around, seeing here and across the rivers, there was this hillside, pretty big hillside, and uh, I, I, which is Mount Washington. Now I know that, but they didn't at the time. There was a big Alcoa sign that blinked off and on and off oh, and on. on. So on, I took a left on. I came around and came in and I'm looking around the city and I'm thinking to myself, who in the hell would ever want to live here? Based (laughs) on no other information or just a a preconceived idea of what we knew about Pittsburgh and the steel industry and so on. And so, um, and the draft was in February. So the draft was in February, unlike April now, but it was in February of, of that year, um, yes. uh, we had, this was interesting too, because we had gone out to, to dinner, uh, my roommate, a couple teammates, um, and uh, we were joined by a family in Pittsburgh, I mean, in, in South Bend, uh, who were big uh, Notre Dame boosters. And so we went mm-hmm. back to their house um, after dinner, having a couple cocktails and just talking about the remaining part of the semester and what was going on and where are you gonna go? And, um, and we, you know, the in classes and how we're doing in school, they, they just kind of BS. Well, the, the draft was on and this was the third night. Friday night was the big night and it going through 17 rounds. So the news comes on at 10 o'clock and it said, the sports comes on and said, oh, in the NFL draft uh, today, several players, uh, from the South Bend area were chosen by the NFL. So-and-so from uh, Indiana State went to New York, uh, and then so-and-so from Cincinnati went to uh, And um, the Irish's uh, captain, Bob Rocky Blyer, was drafted number 16 by the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> well, there was a pause in our conversation. They go, hey, Congratulations. Anyway, so where are we going to go on, on spring break? And so what classes do you have left? And, you know, what are you going to do with the rest? So that that was that was it. Hey, congratulations. I mean, there was no phone call. I didn't get up yeah. on stage. ESPN. There was, yeah. there was nobody. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. things have changed. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, quite, quite dramatically. Very, very little fanfare. And uh, my goodness. You, you go to the Steelers, you, you you make the team, you got a taste of the NFL uh, in, in Pittsburgh that year and was thinking, I'm sure, thinking ahead of what I can do to solidify my position in the NFL in the future at that time. You didn't have anything else on your mind. 
No, no, no. You know, so you're, yeah, so you're just kind of like going, oh, okay, fine. Now, in the back of my mind, now, in the back of my mind, somewhere floating around back there, obviously, there was a, a war going on over in Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, high school friends had uh, gone and, um, uh, and got drafted or enlisted. Um, people that I knew uh, went to college, dropped out of college, got drafted, and um, and so there's, there, there, there was that conflict that was um, hanging over all of our heads at, at that kind of time. So I can remember the happiest day, if I may share this with you, of my, sure. my brief uh, football career was at the end of training camp, and I was walking out of a meeting, and Bill Austin was the head coach at the time, and he was standing there, and he goes to me, and he goes, um, he said, Brock, can I talk to you for a second? I said, sure. He said, listen, I, we got this letter in the mail. Uh, and uh, it was my 1A classification. Now, for some of your listeners out there, you got a, you got a classification uh, about eligibility of being be able to be drafted. And that was your 1A classification. Uh, you had a student deferment up to that period of time. But, but now you're in, and he said, we think you're good enough to make this team. So we're going to take care of this for you. Hmm. whatever taking care of that meant. And I'm assuming, well, maybe get in the reserve, get in the national, yeah. guard, whatever it might be. Um, and so time, so, time goes, so time goes on and uh, I don't pay much attention to it, um, but it's getting, you know, September goes by and it's in October and I hadn't heard anything. And so I, 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 I went to the head office and said, Do you, sir, did you hear anything about, you know, getting into reserves or national guard now we're having a problem said you know um of course they were it was 1968 it was the height of the war we had the most um, uh, military personnel in in vietnam he said and they, you know the general retired and the congressman got defeated and so oh. uh, you know <laughs> okay fine so he said, don't worry we're, we're working on it whatever that might be and anyway so as you talked about getting the second letter it was it was a it was an we're at old. We're at old Pitt Stadium. Uh, you have to understand, and and, uh, um, and uh, we're in the locker room. That's where we practice. Uh, and so we're in the locker room over there. And um, the uh, somebody hollered, "Hey, Blair, there's a there's a letter over here for you." No, in all locker rooms, there's one table where all the fan mail would be deposited. You know, for the the players. Yeah. And uh, uh, and so. I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, fine. Who's writing me a letter? Maybe it's a Notre Dame fan that wants an autograph from former captain. And so I saunter over to the table, picked it up, unfolded it, and <laughs> it goes, greetings. We'd like to inform you that you've been inducted into the armed service of, services of your country. Wow. Now, obviously, that was the worst fan letter I've ever received. <laughs> yeah, the one from Uncle Sam was the worst possible fan. That's it. Uh, and so there was my draft notification. Uh, interesting to report the next day. The next day. Next day. And it was it, the next day at 7 a.m. to report. Oh, you better be kidding me. Oh, my goodness gracious. I mean, they're supposed to give you some time. Well, it was post dated or postmarked, you know, a week earlier. So however, it gets messed up in the mail. But anyway, they, they, uh, 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 Gave me high blood pressure for another 24 hours just so that I could get my uh, act together and uh, and uh, inform uh, those people that needed to be informed that 
I'm on my way to the military. On, on your way, indeed. Uh, drafted December 4th, 1968. Right. Uh, you volunteered for duty in Vietnam. And by May of 1969, you were, as they say, in country with Company C of the 4th Battalion, 31st Infantry, and uh, operating a, a grenade launcher in, in, in your unit. Yeah, that's just, right. Astounding, astounding <laughs> that within a five month period that your life would a cataclysmic change. It, I, and it did, you know, and part of it and part of it was, a, you know, all of a sudden in to some respect, having to have to report immediately didn't give you time to reflect or feel sorry for yourself because now you're just reacting to the situation and reacting to the situation was, you know, getting on a plane and flying down to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, then on the Fort in Georgia, where I put my basic and my advanced infantry training. And it was just trying to get through camp. You know, again, it was, it was like being a rookie or being a freshman um, and, and, going to, uh, and going to football camp, or, or at least I had that experience, you know, so it, 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 didn't, it was like, okay, I've been here before. So you just hunker down, you do everything every day, what needs to be done, you get yelled at, okay, fine. Uh, I had the Catholic nuns, so I've been held, yelled at <laughs> all my life anyway. So coaches, yep. and so you just, you go through that process and you're just surviving and getting through uh, and not thinking about the future or so on. And then they got orders after uh, advance infantry, my orders were to report to uh, Vietnam and so, and so I, I flew to the West Coast and then flew to, um, to Vietnam and landed in country um, in May of, of, of 69, by the time I, I got there. Then was assigned to um, our, our, my unit, as you had made mention. Um, and, um, and I was the first new guy that was, uh, came into uh, that company um, within three months. And they were, uh, and I can remember my first, ex my first reaction or experience. They were out on a sweep off of um, off of a LZ that we were pulling uh, a bunker guard on, and so they were just coming up out of the field. And as they came up, and I'm thinking, oh man, it was like the movies. These guys are old. I mean, they're not old, but they looked old. They had the thousand yard stare. And, you know, and shaved, um, they're sweaty, coming up, dragging their butts and their, 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 their ammo and, um, uh, and walking up this hill. And it was like, wow, this is, this is it. So they assigned me as a grenadier and um, they needed a, a, I don't know. Well, I, I, I think they signed me because I, you had to carry your own grenades. And so you had to carry yeah. You had to carry 60 grenades. Now, it, it doesn't sound like much, but that was like an extra probably 60 pounds that you had to carry. 60 uh, pounds. Yeah, on top of your rucksack and everything else um, in this in this heat. And, and an M79 grenade launcher was like a single shot uh, shotgun, you know, broken two, you just, and then it was a short, uh, it was a short, I should say, uh, weapon of that nature. Uh, and so that became, um, so I was the grenadier. The grenadier was used to uh, mostly um, at a distance 
anywhere from 50 to 100 to 150 meters away uh, to be able to get firepower on a position uh, that otherwise uh, you might not be able to do over buildings or into buildings or um, over trees uh, or in the bush. And so that was kind of the Kentucky windage, as I like to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's right. Let it go. Like <laughs> so, in the movies. Yeah. Yeah, like in the movies. And so yeah. anyway, that was uh, that's the weapon that I carried. And and as you pointed out, you were the first new guy. And I know that you've talked about this was a replacement war, not like the old World War II movies. You train with the unit at Paris Island, you go right. over together, you know. This was yeah. different. You were the new guy, you were the only new guy with this experienced yeah. battle hardened unit. Right. You know, and so that was a during the, that war specifically for, for those who had gone over early back in 65 as a, as a unit, um, um, unlike today, you know, so our soldiers today who are in the Middle East, you know, that they, they, they train with the unit, um, they go over with their unit, they come back with their unit. Uh, and they uh, yeah. then they're on a, a 18 month a, a 24 month cycle as they go through that process again. Um, and so you have some commonality, you have uh, common interests, experiences that you've gone through and trained. Well, when you're a placement, you're just a new guy, you know, you're a new guy coming in. It takes you a while to kind of fit in to see what's going to happen. Um, and unfortunately, you don't make necessarily uh, tight connections or or, uh, or friendships. Um, you're just kind of going through a common experience. Um, so you know people by their nicknames or so on. Um, and uh, you kind of live through uh, that experience together. Um, and they're, you know, they're 18, 19, 20, 21 year old, you know, young men um, making decisions or having to do what is necessary um, at that time. So. It was, uh, in, in that regards, it was really a, another experience uh, to go through. And um, uh, and so some of the guys that I served with, um, you know, I don't remember or their names or because um, you just only had that moment uh, to share uh, that, that you had and then boom, they left before you did or you got injured yeah. and you left and you went and you went on your way. So. That was the shame of, of, of not being able to sustain um, maybe those contacts and or those memories that you had. And uh, the, the, the fateful uh, day for you, uh, August 20th, 1969, and uh, the, the contrast to what was what was going on in the world, a tumultuous time in America. And uh, I, I looked at the contrast, being a big music fan, uh, while Woodstock was ending and Jimi Hendrix was playing the national anthem. You began this particular uh, rescue of getting out wounded and the dead on August 18th, uh, the day that Woodstock ended. Two days later on August 20th, uh, you had an experience that obviously that very, very few people can recount and very few people would be in a position to survive to recount when you consider what you went through. Yes, right. Well, you know, and I, and I think just, you know, again, I would like to put in perspective for your listeners of how the operations or how operations took place um, in, 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 in Vietnam. So um, uh, we worked uh, our battalion, our, 
time made up of four companies and we had an area of operation. Usually in that area of operation were two what we call landing zones or hilltops or mountains. Mm -hmm. That's where uh, the big guns were, the 155s that would cover you uh, in that area. Um, helicopters would come in for um, food replacements and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, one company would pull bunker guard on one of these two uh, landing zones. And the other two companies would be in the field. And then they would rotate on a basis anywhere from 10 days to two weeks. Uh, you'd be down in the field, then you'd come up to, uh, to, uh, to one of the landing zones, pull bunker guard, you know, from, from there, uh, and just continue that rotation, so and so. So we're on LZ Siberia, um, a, one of our landing zones, uh, when there's a general call that comes up that we're on now 24 hour alert, obviously as a private I didn't know why we were on 24-hour alert, except yeah. something was going on out there that uh, that made so. So eventually afterwards, it wasn't until afterwards until we did some research and uh, writing the book, but afterwards it was that there was a big movement by the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, down into our area called Hep Duck. Um, and there was a movement by us and the Marines were pushing them down. We were kind of the retaining force here, not to go any further. So uh, they had a whole regiment that was coming down from uh, North Vietnam uh, and into our area. So now we're on 24-hour alert <clears throat> when one of our sister companies, um, uh, Bravo Company, was in the field, got hit. And so they got hit there in a firefight um, and uh, so they got gun support coming in um, and, and artillery you know, covering their area as well. And so we were now uh, taken off the hill down into the valley and we were to get them out of that hot spot. But by the time we get to them, it's late at night, it's darkness. Most of the fighting had stopped um, and our responsibility was to pull front and rear security for who was left of that unit. And there were about five fallen soldiers that had died. And so we were to carry them out as well. We wanted to get them out uh, of that area uh, before the enemy got a hot, uh, before they could uh, find that location and then really bombard them. So that was our responsibility. So on the way out, we ran into a quick firefight. Um, the word was to leave the bodies. We'll come back and pick them up. And that was our mission two days later as uh, on August 20th, as we're um, <clears throat> coming in and it was about eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, we were humping the hills since the break of dawn, um, trying to find our location, coming on to an open rice paddy. And uh, as we're moving out in that open rice paddy, it was a reinforced platoon. Um, I was eighth in line carrying my grenade launcher. Word was to keep five yards distance between one another, your eyes and your ears open, your head on a swivel. As we well know, the enemy, they're around. Our point man, unfortunately, was uh, relatively new. Um, and as a human being in this excitement, 
lost um, sense of his responsibility. He saw a movement across the berm uh, and, he, and he hollered, gook, gook. Uh, shots broke the stillness. They started to run. He started to chase them, pulling everybody out into the middle of the rice paddy when all of a sudden a machine gun oh. starts to level the area. The bodies obviously were diving left and right into the rice paddies that uh, we were walking on the berms. Um, I jumped into the rice paddy in front of me, crawled my hands and knees to the end of it on another one lying below us. Four guys were pinned down out in the open. Now, my responsibility, as I had saying, was to get some firepower. I saw the machine gun up on the yeah. hillside, you know, about 150 meters away, and I rolled over my side, breached my grenade uh, when I felt a thud in my left leg. It started to burn and bled. That's when I was hit for the first time. Discharged my wrong, got behind some protection, got enough firepower to at least keep their heads down and the four guys that were pinned down got out of there. Um, and then eventually we crawled back to our commanding officer um, and the rest of the platoon came crawling in. I think we left four or five guys in, 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 in that rice paddy um, and set up another defensive position. They probed our perimeter and they got close enough to um, throw, a hell, uh, throw a hand grenade. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this hand grenade coming uh, end over end over end. Uh, and it hits my commanding officer. The captain, yeah. The captain, right in the middle of the back. I mean, he's lying prone, overlooking the, the berm, and it's right in the middle of the back. And it bounces off of him, uh, and it rolls between my feet before I can jump out of the way and I was right next to him. I was only about three feet from him and um, it, it, it blows up and blows up through my, 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 my right foot and knee and thigh. And um, again, we're another firefight until the platoon fought its way down and dragged us out of there. And, and dragged out, it took, <laughs> right. I, I, and, and literally and figuratively dragged out. You went in there, as you said, on an extract to try to rescue company B, get right. wounded, get dead out of there. Now you're in a much worse situation and outnumbered by about a hundred uh, in terms of <laughs> what the odds were in this situation. It was That's pretty daunting right. to be exposed and be outnumbered uh, to such a degree. That's right. So somehow, somehow, so we set up our, you know, we were, we were there waiting for uh, that, the, the, the platoon or whatever to find out what we were. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden there was a barrage of, gunfire taking place on our position after I got hit. And I thought, man, they're gonna overrun us, whatever it might be. Uh, and um, for some reason, all of a sudden it stopped. Yeah. No and final they, assault. And they, no final assault, and they withdrew. So it's Gosh. either we, it's either we got, their, their, their head officer got hit or whatever it was, but they were un, not under leadership and or, and so they 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 left us, and then a then a sister platoon had fought its way down there, and, and their responsibility was to drag us out of there. And so and drag they did, and as they told people, you know, they had to drag my butt out of there. You know, it's like um, I couldn't walk, obviously, and so they had to carry me in a poncho liner, and they dragged 170, you know, so 170 pounds of just dead meat. You know, they're dragging and they're dragging and they've been up just as long as we had. They've been in the firefight themselves on their way down to into us. And so they had um, 
gotten to, uh, so they got, they, they <laughs> this was the best part. So one of, one of the, one of, uh, one of their sergeants comes running in uh, as, as soon as they got there and he goes, Rock. And I had met him before. He said, Rock, you're right. I said, yeah. Oh, he said, that's good. We heard that you and the captain bought it. Well, no, I didn't. But they oh. said, okay, fine. We're happy about that. We're going to get you out of here. You'll be the first guy. You'll be the first guy I'm taking out of here. I said, yeah. okay, fine. And so then he came back and he said, oh, no, you'll be the second guy. The captain's going to be the guy. <laughs> the you captain's going to be the <laughs> rank. Yeah, they pull rank. <laughs> well, right. And so anyway, they started dragging me. I ended up being the last guy um, oh. that ended that that ended where we were supposed to be. <laughs> By the time oh. my guys would be tired, they'd set me down, catch your breath, and uh, they'd move. On. They, they, two guys would pass me, three guys, and then they'd move on. But anyway, that was that was very finally got to um, you know finally got to, to to where the helicopters were coming in. The adrenaline was finally oh, wearing off. I mean, just it was like I mean, it was pain that I hadn't ever felt before, and so I was I kept, I kept yelling at the medic to give me some morphine, give me some morphine, and he said yeah. I can't. What do you mean? I wanted to choke him. <laughs> he said you can't. He said no. He said because you need to be able to talk to 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 the doctors when we get you to the um, uh, Met, uh, medevac. Yeah, yeah, where where the medevac is to, to yeah. let you know what injuries are, and you know, and if you're all doped up, they you can't do that. So, I said, okay, fine. so that was uh, that was that experience. Six six hours to cover about two miles to get out. Right. Uh, about fourteen hours before you you got that uh, that precious morphine <laughs> to get the pain medication, and just to just to give a, a perspective on the injuries that you did suffer. Uh, 100 pieces of shrapnel in your lower left leg. Uh, three of your toes severely, severely affected. Uh, lost part of your right foot and hip and leg. And, and this was what really, I mean, once again, a perspective from the military. It's always cold and hard. You were a 75% casualty as list, you know, and in, the, in the Army's parlance, you were listed at 75%. That's right. Uh, it's, it's, it's beyond. It's astounding. My gosh. Oh, so, yeah. And uh, it took a couple of days for uh, the word to, uh, to, to, to get home uh, several days later about, uh, about your, your injuries and uh, the extent of your injuries. Uh, Rocky, I got to ask you this because of, uh, I, I did some research a number of years ago uh, on the uh, the Harvard football team that uh, Bobby Kennedy was part of after mm -hmm. World War 1946, right. and I talked to some guys that I talked to a guy that liberated Auschwitz, I talked to a guy that was at Guadalcanal, and uh, the the whole concept of the pact with the Almighty. You said something which I I you talk about words to live by. You didn't say as as you pointed out. I'm going to go build hospitals for the rest of my life. I'm going to go get ordained and become a priest when I went home. You had a much simpler perspective. Do you remember what that quote was about the save me and share? Do you remember that? I'll recount it for you if you don't specifically okay, remember. Because I'm going to tell you another story. Go ahead. Yeah, but save me and I will share the good times. Oh, that's right. And, yes. and won't yeah. complain about the bad times. You know, it was Words a, to live by for all of us. 
that was it, you know. So uh, as I was, you know, part of the story in in my mind, it was in that when we were out on the field, it was in the rice paddy, and I had pulled, and I and uh, after the first time I hit, I got behind some protection to be able to get that firepower on the on machine gun level. Then, in all honesty, part of the story was that there was a lull. There was a lull in the action, just like this. No silence. I mean, no noise. Quiet. Just, yep. The sun was beating down, and and as I tell people, who should appear in my foxhole was none the less than my sixth grade teacher, Sister Hilaire. Now I don't know where she came from, how she got there, but in my mind, she's sitting right there reminding me of all the stories that she told us of those soldiers in Korea and World War II. And when the blood started to flow, they started making deals. You know, that's a, you get me out of here, I'll become a priest. You get me out of here, I'll build you, I'll build you a hospital. You get me out of here, I'll do great things. Yeah. You know? And then the reality, then the reality, as I'm thinking about this, is, is that I'm thinking, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, until I get home, you know. Until you get home, <laughs> right? And then life's pretty good. You're home, you know. You're, you're yeah, going out never, on a date or, or whatever it might be, and, and you go, you know. It was like I always tell people: it was like when we were kids, and we playing hide and go seek, and you <laughs> couldn't find that last person. Oh my goodness gracious! Then it was like Ali, Ali, and flee. Okay, so <laughs> my fingers were crossed. It didn't really mean. And, I, and so <laughs> the internal dialogue I had to myself was like. You know, you had me in a pretty tough spot back there. What do you think I was going to do? You know, I mean, you know, I'm, things are pretty good now. And so yeah, right. reality of life is the only thing that we have. The only thing that we have is our lives. That's all yep. we have. Yep. So you got mine, as my promise was, you got mine. And I'll share the good times. And I won't complain about the bad times. Mm-hmm. Is that a deal? <laughs> His life plan now in place after coming to terms with the Almighty, Rocky was ready to return home. Vintage Brand is the story of American sporting culture, combining our rich history, traditions, rituals, and pageantry. Weaving together more than a century of American sports memories and images, it defines what tradition really means. Come experience the history and rituals. Remember and honor the legends. Feel the passion and pageantry of the past. Welcome to the greatest collection of American sports history and images, all reproduced on fan apparel and merchandise. Welcome to Vintage Brand.